Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here tonight and to share uh, in not only this meeting, but the subject of revival. I can honestly say that uh, as a Christian, I don't know any other theme has been more in my heart uh, for probably over 35 years now. Uh, That theme has been born and carried in my heart. It commenced when I was converted 17, and then about maybe three years later, I was in a home. Uh, Some of you remember the late Sammy Thompson, and I was in Sammy's home, and a person gave me a CD. If you're a young person, you'll not know what I'm talking about, but they gave me a CD, and the CD was called Lewis Land of Revival. And I listened to that, and my life was changed. Because as a young Christian, I realized that all that I had experienced up to that point was not to be compared with what God could do when revival came. And so God put something in my heart, a flame, dim at times, very bright at others. But I thank God it's still there. And I have had a burden. I want to carry that burden. And that is for a revival and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit as occurred in the past, perhaps in greater measure, for the need is greater. But for such a revival to occur, not only in the nine counties of Ulster, but in the four provinces of Ireland. And that burden has carried with me, and I believe that that will occur. So I've been praying along with others. I listened very carefully to the other meetings that were held. And I want to carry on, really, with the theme and thoughts that were brought before you by Bertie and by Stephen and other nights. Now, I have been given uh, a text tonight, which I'm very pleased to preach on. And so if you have a a Bible with you or a testament, well, the testament, sorry, won't be much good. But if you have a Bible with you, then please follow with me. A beautiful psalm, Psalm 85. Psalm 85. And we're going to commence to read from the verse 1. We'll be putting somewhat of an emphasis on the first seven or eight verses. Uh, We won't spend time on all because of time. But I want to draw attention to Psalm 85, so we'll read it together. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sins. Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and Grant us thy salvation. I will hear or I will listen 
what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak or he desires to speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh to them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Turn with me now, please, to another somewhat familiar passage to some. Turn over a little to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah and the chapter 6. The book of Isaiah and the chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each had six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Amen, and God will bless the public reading of his word. Now, I'm sure that many of you perhaps haven't had time or opportunity or thought of asking God to speak to you in the gathering. So we're going to be silent just for a few moments together, and I want you to ask God to speak to you. And I want you to ask God to come and work in your heart in the gathering. So we'll be silent for just a few moments and then we'll pray, but I want you to pray in the moments of silence. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around God's Word. Lord, you read all our hearts. We come tonight, Lord, desiring 
that as Stephen has prayed, that your will would be done, that, Lord, this gathering tonight would be a contribution, a link to what you plan for the island of Ireland. We ask for the anointing and help of the Holy Spirit. We pray a wall of fire around about us and God's glory to be in the midst. Surprise us, Lord. Surprise us by your help and your spirit, your presence and your work. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. The title for our message tonight is The Why of Revival. The Why of Revival. The verse, as has been quoted already and is before me on this platform, in Psalm 85 and verse 6, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? As Stephen has outlined, certainly my desire, and I know those of the friends who have gathered and arranged these meetings, this is not merely to inform people about revival. It is not merely a history lesson, although it is partly a history lesson. There is a purpose and an objective to this gathering. And the objective is that people will begin to recognize and change their lives and pray that God will send an awakening, that God will work in our land, which is darker than it has ever been, where people are more broken than they have ever been, where suicide rates are at their highest where they have ever been. Homes Lives, families, communities, cities, towns, broken, broken. It is for that reason that we who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior have the answer to all these problems. The answer is not specifically in us nor is it to be found in them, but to be found in God when God intervenes. I meet many Christians today, and when they ask me, what do you do? Many of them are leaders in churches, and they say, what do you do? And I tell them, well, I'm itinerant in that I preach in various places, but the focus of what we do is revival. The general response is, well, I don't know. The end times are coming and the Lord's returning. The Antichrist is rising. Basically, what they're conveying is, I have little or no interest in revival. I believe that I must go with the path of apathy and accept the status quo. Whatever will be, will be. The Bible has said times will get worse. The Antichrist surely will rise. Evil will increase on the earth. And so 
People become passive and say that's just the way it'll be. But I draw your attention tonight to those who have that view and that outlook, and there are many of them, is that whenever Egypt, which was a picture of the devil's domain, and Pharaoh, a picture of the devil, was doing his worst against the people of God, bringing much oppression and much opposition to them, and bringing down his whip upon them, It was in that setting where the world and the devil were doing their best to extinguish the people of God. It is then that the people of God cried to God. It is then when the people of God did not enter into passivity and say what will be will be, but rather were stirred by God's spirit. And God sent them a great deliverer. And in the midst of the evil of Egypt, God delivered his people. God came to the aid of his people. God demonstrated that he was God to his people and to Egypt. Egypt and the world continued. And my friends, I'm not here to say that a revival will turn all events in the earth, not at all. But what I am saying is that the people of God have a mandate in Scripture to be praying for revival and to be crying to God for their land and for their people. In Psalm 85, we truly must take off our shoes like Moses because we really are entering holy ground. We're listening in to the prayer of a man. We're going in where he's privately calling on God from his own heart. God takes that cry and places it in the word of God that it might become the cry of every generation. I want you to notice, first of all, Not regarding the cry itself initially, but the psalmist himself. I want you to notice that the psalmist had a history, a knowledge of the past. You see, this is not a history lesson, but it is. You see, friends, if we do not know what God can do and what God has done, it's less likely that we'll ever pray that he'll do it again. There are many churches and groups today that probably have never, ever even heard that there is such a thing called revival. It is very unlikely that such a group will ever pray for it. But the psalmist, he said, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. He's looking back. He's looking at the biblical history of the people of God. And as he looks back in his memory and he considers the scripture and how that God took these people out from captivity under Babylon and how he brought them back to their own land, he's thinking about it, about God's power and God's favor. 
And he said, thou, thou brought them back from captivity. Thou forgivest the iniquity. He said, you, you got rid of their sins. He said, you covered their sins. You blotted them out. He said, you, you left them clean as you drew them back to yourself and to your land. You've taken away all your wrath, the righteous wrath against sin. He said that was due to them. He said you covered that by your mercy and you took away all your wrath. He said that was a wonderful time when God did that in the past. Perhaps in your life tonight you look back and say, I remember a time when God dealt with me. I remember that season when God really handled me and I really did meet him personally. And I knew what it was for God to forgive me. And I knew what it was for God to strengthen me and, and God to get me on my feet. And that personal encounter with the living God abides. See, friends, this psalmist was aware of the key doctrines of the grace of God. He knew about God's forgiveness. He knew how to be forgiven. And he knew how to come into blessing. Not only did he know the past, but the psalmist identified the present. You see, friends, although in the first three verses he's going historically over what has happened, then in verse 4, he begins to the present, he said, turn us. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. He is now recognizing that there's something wrong in the present. He said, although you did this for us in the past, he said, something has happened that makes me feel the need to call out to you that, Lord, you would turn us. And then in verse 5, wilt thou not be angry with us or toward us and cause thine anger toward us to cease? Verse 6, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? The psalmist spiritually, was a good doctor. One of the great tragedies today in our land is that many who are in ministry in the Lord's work are poor doctors spiritually. They cannot identify the sickness of their people. They cannot recognize when the people are ill and asleep spiritually. They simply go by the outward signs of whether people are at meetings or at the prayer meeting or whether they're doing some external thing. That's generally the observation. Very poor ability to discern where the people are. A few weeks ago, I was traveling up to the Isle of Harris, driving up with my wife, and we listened to the late Bill McLeod. Bill McLeod was the individual, the pastor in Saskatoon in, in Canada. He had become the pastor of a church of about two to three hundred. 
when he arrived, he knew God had called him there, and so he knew that there needed to be evangelism done. He encouraged the people to come, and that those who didn't feel that they were up to doing evangelism, that they would pray at home, and the others would come, and nobody came. Well, he wanted to be kind to them, so he said maybe they were all praying, but it was highly unlikely. He tried a few other things to get them involved in evangelism, and then eventually the penny dropped in the pastor. He said, these people have no interest in winning the lost. These people have no interest in prayer. We need revival. We need revival. And so he led, and he led with his elders, and he led with his deacons. And he said to the men, we are going to spend time each day, and we're going to begin meetings. Not big, long, lengthy ones, but we're going to start to pray, and we're going to focus on revival. Because we need God to come and visit us. We are sound asleep spiritually. We're absolutely uh, in line theologically. Our doctrines are correct. We have all that sorted. But there is no life in us. There's no flame in us. There's no zeal for God in us. Uh, and we're sick spiritually. And so the man diagnosed what was wrong in his congregation. He then led by example in prayer and repentance and all the things that were necessary so that God's presence could be attracted into the church. Thankfully, his people began to warm up. They began to thaw out and they began to seek God earnestly. For several years, he prayed with his congregation for revival. Three or four years before the revival came in 1971, Duncan Campbell, the Lewis revivalist, arrived. He arrived and spent time in the church and preached in it and then prophesied one of his few prophecies that we know of. And Duncan Campbell prophesied and he said, Revival will come to this church in Saskatoon and it will spread and it will have impact right across Canada. In 1971, that's exactly what happened. You see, my dear friends, the psalmist not only knew the past of what God had done, but he recognized the present and he could see that there was great sickness and illness. Evan Roberts, the revivalist of Wales in 1904, 26 years of age, had been converted at 13 At 13, he was told by one of the leaders in the church, be careful that you don't miss the Spirit coming. From 13 years of age, he never missed the prayer meeting. For 13 following years, when the boys said, we're going for football, we're going swimming, he was tempted, but he said, what if the Spirit comes and I'm out swimming or boating? And so he committed his life to following Christ. With the devotion that the young fellow had toward God, God blessed his soul. 
And he became more interested and more taken with the subject of revival as a coal miner. But in the early years of 1900, Evan Roberts became more and more troubled. Internally, not, not troubled with other people, but troubled in himself. And the trouble was this, that there's something wrong with the church. No flame, no zeal, no joy, no power, no anointing, no conversions, no passion. It began to weigh heavily on the young man's heart. The turning point for young Evan Roberts commenced really a short time prior to the revival. He said in his journal that for three or four months prior to the revival, he would get this tremendous heaviness and burden on him for the state of the church and for the lostness of Wales. He saved his money for 10 years. He saved his wages for 10 years. That he might have the privilege of going through wheels, paying all his own expenses, and to help others to go and preach. Devotion to Christ in a young man. He said in his journal, with this heaviness upon him, one night he woke up in the early hours of the morning and he said for three to four hours he met God. He said it happened every night for four hours. God woke him out of his sleep. He said I saw God face to face. And he could not live without revival. He could not live if God would not visit his country and his fellow countrymen. He had seen the face of God. He had heard the voice of God. And it happened night after night after night till all who knew him knew that something was happening. God was doing something in a 26-year-old's life that could not be accounted for other than God. You see, my dear friends, the psalmist knew the past. He also knew the present. He knew where things were. But then also... He knew pain. Like Evan Roberts, this was not merely a theological prayer. This was a cry from a man in private to God. Turn us, O God. We, your people, turn us. Wilt thou not be angry with, wilt thou be angry with us forever? Will this continue for every generation? Will this go on and on and on? 
Wilt thou not revive us again? Oh, my friends, this man is feeling his prayer. Interestingly, all the characters that are used in revivals in whatever country, nation, or region it happens, every one of them without exception have these unique experiences of God that brings them into a dimension where they literally walk with God and they carry the anointing and power of the presence of God. They live in the world that is to come. Jeremiah Lamphere in 1858 and seven and eight called the prayer meeting in New York. It was said that this, although he was a very simple man in many respects, he wasn't trained for ministry. He was a lay preacher, but he had a burden and a desire to win the lost. He had been doing a lot of tracking, but he discovered tracts and preaching wasn't really that effectual. And so he felt a burden to prayer and encouraged people to pray and got them to pray. And it's said of Jeremiah Lamphere that often he was found in New York, sometimes holding on to the lampposts, and people heard him crying to God, the sin of this nation is breaking my heart. My dear friends, it is one thing to point out the sin of the nation. It is one thing as Christians to show people the blackness and the wickedness and the evil that goes on. But it is an altogether different thing when we cry like these men of the brokenness of our own heart over what's going on. To have a broken heart over the sin of the nation. It is the broken heart that is necessary a necessary component to revival occurring. Although one may have all the answers and know all the books, nevertheless, it is this component that is necessary in revival. I want to consider with you for a few moments In verse 6, he said, Wilt thou not revive us again? The source of revival is God. There was a great preacher in America, wonderfully used, converted in the afternoon in a space of very short space of time, hours, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and became the great revivalist of America, Charles Grandison Finney. Although Finney's life was taken up very much in revivals, he did write a book and several books, but one of the books, he kind of pointed out if you would do various things that revival would automatically come. That did work in his day. But a mistake was made, and God forbid that I should challenge the great Charles Grandison Finney. But my dear friends, what we have to understand is that revival is a sovereign work of God. We can prepare the ground for revival. We can prepare our hearts for revival. We can prepare the church 
for revival, but we can't bring revival. God must send revival. As one has said, we can set the seals of the boat, but only God can send the wind to make it move. The psalmist, or rather the prophet Isaiah said, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down. The tragedy for us tonight, dear brothers and sisters and visitors here tonight, is that not one of us have any experience of revival. You see, it's now over 100 years, even in our province, since there was a revival in 1921. For the rest of the UK, Britain and Wales, 1904-1859, it's a long time, many generations have passed. 1947 to 53 or thereabouts, 49-53, Isle of Lewis, where my wife comes from. When I met a number of people, they're with the Lord now, but a number of people over the last 30 years as I traveled up year by year to visit family and so on, I met people who were converted in that revival. They certainly had a different air on them that they had than ordinary, what we would say ordinary Christians have. Some of them wailed up when they began to talk about the revival. It was as though the memories flooded back. And here in Ulster and in other places, the primary instrument was Duncan Campbell. And of course, in Ireland, Duncan Campbell became a very famous man in the church, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what I found interesting, and others did as well who read about it and knew about it, was when you talk to the people who were in that revival in the Hebrides, and you mentioned Duncan Campbell, it meant really nothing to them. It meant nothing to them. They weren't taken up with the preacher. They weren't fascinated with Duncan Campbell's stories because they had experienced God. God had come to their churches. God had come with conviction on their streets. People had been smitten who had no intention of going to church as they were walking those moorlands and fell on their knees under conviction suddenly by the presence of God and began to cry out for salvation. People were going to find Christians to see if they could tell them how to be converted and how they would be preserved from falling into the belly of hell without any preaching. No, my friends, when I met those people and what I've read of others and other awakenings is that the people were not concerned about the revivalists, but the general consensus was God came down. God came down. Edwin Orr, an Ulster man who became a great preacher around the world, wrote that hymn, I think it was him who wrote it, O Holy Ghost. Revival comes from thee. Send a revival and start the work in me. Not only is God the source in this text, wilt thou not revive us again? But we discover that 
friends, tonight that there's not only the source of revival being God, but then we have the saints, the people of God being addressed in the prayer, and that is, wilt thou not revive us again? Wilt thou not come and visit us, God's people, again? There's no cry at this moment for the ungodly. There's no specific calling for mass conversions at this moment, although that is always the outcome of revival. No, it's, it's laying hold of the truth that Peter presents to us in the New Testament, that judgment must begin in the house of God. All true revivals are commenced when the people of God who are slumbering and sleeping and indifferent spiritually are awakened and aroused by God out of their sleep. And they have to be disturbed and shaken to be brought back to consciousness again and to awareness of their calling on God and their responsibilities, not only to God, but to their fellow man. Revival is not only coming from God, but it is utilized through the remnant through the synth. Now I read from Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to draw your attention to a few thoughts. Because here we have an individual who comes into revival. This is where we can draw. And we could use many others by the way. But we're using Isaiah because he, his, what happens with him really captures and clarifies for us what happens to the individual in revival. And this should be the prayer of every Christian. To some extent that God, that you would do this with me. That you would do this in my life, Lord. It'll never be the same. But as I've said, every individual used in revival, every person who has uh, become an instrument in the hand of God, whether in a great way or in a lesser way, these are the elements that occur in the life. He said in the year that King Uzziah died, there was a catalyst. There was an event that was a marker first in time as to tell us when this happened to the prophet. But also I believe that the event itself of the death of the king was actually a link to what happened when he met God. You see, this man was no nominal Christian. Isaiah was no ordinary five-yet believer sleeping in church services and watching TV when the prayer meeting was on. This is the prophet of God. This is the man who had the call of God on his life and to the first five chapters had been ministering and bringing the word of God to the nation. But as a man called of God, converted to God, preaching for God, he encounters God. And the encounter occurs 
when the king dies. What's interesting about King Isaiah is that King Isaiah had been a very godly king. In his youth, he had loved and followed the Lord. He had honored the Lord through his life. But in later life, through wrong influences and pride, he began to get away from God. And he decided to enter into the temple and to do what only the priests could do. And they told him, listen, you can't do that. You can't come and offer a sacrifice. You're going outside the bounds of a king. But he was, he was so confident in himself that 80 men couldn't keep him out of the temple. And when he was pushing his way through to do what God had delegated only the priest to do, suddenly leprosy came on his forehead. They didn't need to push him out anymore. He ran. But he was a leper now. He had lost the throne, he had lost the city, he had lost the crown. His son took over and he lived as a leper. And that laid heavy on the heart of Isaiah. How that the man who was bright for God, how the man that honored God was now a leper outside the city. Oh, my friend, you could have been bright for God, but you're a leper tonight. You're a leper tonight. You let sin come in and you didn't deal with it. You wouldn't listen to anybody and look at where you are tonight. And that was Uzziah. And perhaps in the heart of Isaiah when he heard the king had died, there were many things scrambling in his head as to the state of this man and how this had happened. Maybe it was part of the driving force of his heart that drew him to the temple as he had heard the death of his friend, the king. And as he's waiting before God, this amazing event unexpectedly takes place, as is always the case, my friend, in revival. The unexpected begins to happen. He said, while I was there in the temple, he said that day, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. You see, my dear friends, he got a revelation of something of God. Now we say he got a revelation of God, but no man could have a true revelation of all of God. That wouldn't be possible. He got a revelation of a part of God. But it was so overwhelming to him as the prophet and the preacher that to him it was beyond what he could virtually take. We find in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is also seeking God and delivering God's word. And the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 1, he said, I saw visions of God. We find John and Patmos persecuted for Jesus. And there he sees the Lord on the throne. All seeing God, but all seeing different elements or aspects of God. You see, my dear friend, Isaiah saw the holiness of God. 
He heard these great angelic beings, the seraphim, who forever, since their creation to this present moment and for all eternity, they guarded the holiness of God. Thank God. But you know, it's our duty as the people of God and as believers in the Lord Jesus in a devil-infested world that we defend and honor the holiness of God by being holy ourselves. For the Bible says, Be ye holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. You see, Ezekiel saw the glory of God. It was the weight of God's presence and the majesty of God that really came upon Ezekiel, whereas in John he saw the Son of God. Christ the risen, exalted, glorified Lord, and he saw him in all his glory. You see, my dear friends, the Bible says, Wilt thou not revive us, us? Revelation of God. When one considers the revivals that have happened in the past, think of the revival in England which saved the royal family, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and others. These men met in London for prayer. And as they waited in prayer in the early hours of the morning, I think I'm quoting it right, Wesley put in his journal, His Majesty came. These men encountered God in their lives. These men met the king of the universe and saw the world to come, and they couldn't be the same. It was impossible. They were transformed. They had saw into the next world. My friend, that's what happens when we pray and seek God honestly and earnestly. God lifts the veil. God lifts the material world. God draws back the curtain and lets us see what he sees. And you can't be the same. That's what happened to this man. I saw the Lord. He said that he saw this, these angelic beings. And he said, as he saw them, in verse five, then said I, woe, is me. A great revelation produces a great confession. I looked up some of the other translations of the scripture to get a flavor of what he meant when he said, woe is me in the presence of God in this vision as the great prophet of Israel's before the Lord. For us today, woe is me, maybe doesn't convey much. But let's use other language to carry the same thought. 
He said it's all over. I've met God and it's all over. I don't know what he saw. I don't know what he felt. I just don't know that. But I know the response of the man of God in the nation before God was, it's all over for me. I'm doomed. I have been silent. I should have spoken. I should have been more faithful, but I was silent. I was somewhat holding back. I'm pricked to the depth of my heart. Sermons can't do that. Preachers can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that to your heart. Only the Holy Spirit. There's a great confession. But I want you to notice that the confession of Isaiah was very specific. God is a God of specifics. And my friends, if you're prepared to take some time out each day and spend time alone with God and ask God, God, what is it in my life you don't like? What is it in my life you don't like? Just give him time. Let me assure you from personal experience, he'll tell you. You'll not like some of it. In fact, you'll not like most of it. But that's if you really want to get close to him. If you want to get close. You have to have encounters and you have to, you can't make the encounter, but you can present yourself before God to say, God, I'm not really doing that well here. But I'm setting time aside to pray. And I'm not bringing my lists or anything. I'm just asking you to deal with me. And whatever you have to say to me, by your grace, I'll do it. That would be a great starting point, my friend. The confession was specific. He said, woe is me, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. God said to the prophet, I don't like your tongue. You're my spokesman, but I don't like your tongue. There's something about the way this man talked that God didn't like. You see, that's why it's important for us, friends, that personally we encounter God. Because God can come to us and he can say to us, I don't like that about you. And then by God's grace, you can deal with it. 
Don't make the assumption like many believers today, oh, I'm saved. Oh, I'm saved. No, my dear friends, this man was saved. This man was truly saved. But this man met God. And even though he had a great ministry, God said, I don't like your tongue. He brought it to God, you see, my friends. He didn't hide it. He didn't try to conceal it. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts about the sin in our lives, it may be that it is your tongue tonight. I don't know. But it might be your tongue that God says, your tongue grieves me. The things that you say about other people, you don't love the people of God fervently. You're not kind. You don't have the graces of the Spirit. I don't know. But what it requires as you seek God is not only to receive what God says to you because the Holy Spirit has a voice and he's very able to speak. He is able. If you let him. It might involve you going and apologizing to people that you've hurt. I remember a number of years back, maybe four, four or five years, there was a man that I had a a bit of a confrontation with, not major by words, but certainly there was tensions. I felt he had wronged me, and I felt he had wronged the people that I worked with. He evidently felt that I had wronged him, so we had kind of left on bad terms. I didn't wish him any ill, but also I didn't really wish him any blessing either. That was okay. I had written a letter to him, and the letter was... Not pleasant. It was what I felt at the time. And I wrote it. I got a solicitor's letter from him. And that nearly made me write a second letter, but I didn't do that. You can imagine it wasn't very good. I always felt unhappy about it. Here was me praying for revival, preaching in the country, preaching gospel missions. Didn't feel happy about it. Couldn't just forget about it. It's not right. This man's my brother. I'm going to be in heaven with this man. This is not right. But I didn't know what to do. I knew how he felt about it to some extent, and I knew if I just jumped in, I'd maybe end up worse than it was before. And So I began to pray about it. Every day I prayed, I said, Lord, you know, I'm sorry I did that. I maybe I didn't seek you. I just responded and reacted, and it wasn't what you would have wanted me to do. And I, and I prayed for about a year over it because it was heavy on me. And I left it with the Lord, and I said, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to deal with it. It might make a fool of me. It might embarrass me. It, I don't care. I don't care. I want, to be, I want to be right. I want to be right. And so uh, one day out of the blue, a year or so had passed. I'd forgot praying about it. I just left it by faith with God. I wasn't dealing with it anymore. I said, God, you have to, you have to deal with it with me. I don't know what to do, but I will do if you want me. 
This man contacted me out of the blue, a friend of mine, and he said, Alan, do you remember when we were in the work together and you remember that letter that was written? I said, I do. He said, I don't think that letter was right. He said, I know that I was partly in it and I agreed to it, but he said, I don't think it was right. And I said, well, I don't either. He said, I think we need to go and apologize to that man. I said, well, I agree with you. He said, I'll come with you. I said, you don't need to. You, you weren't really directly involved. I'll go. But I said, I'll need something clearer than that. Just to make sure I'm doing it the way God wants it dealt with. And my wife was listening to me talking. And when I set the phone down, she said to me, were you talking about so-and-so, that man? I said, yes. I said, This man's after telling me that it would be good to go and see him. She said, I forgot to tell you this morning. She said, I had a dream last night. And I dreamt that you went to see that man and you apologized for writing that letter. We'd never discussed it. Both my wife had never discussed it. She didn't know I was praying about it. I contacted that man. And I asked him to forgive me, and he did. He then proceeded to tell me all the things that I had done wrong, and it wasn't easy. Because I was expecting that he, you know, should acknowledge the things he had done wrong, but he didn't do that. And so I, I really meant it. He forgave me, and I, but when I come off the phone, I didn't feel good about it. And I said, that was terrible. You know, he, 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 he didn't, he didn't acknowledge that he'd done wrong. He started pointing out, and, and, and that was hard. And I was in the garden, and I, I was kind of, letting rip at plants and pulling them out, and I was kind of a bit furious with them. And my wife came out. She's a good counselor to me, and she came out, and she said, well, what happened? And I said, well, I said I was sorry. He didn't say he was sorry. And, what? and she let me fume a moment, and then she said, but it's nothing to do with him. It's got nothing to do with him. This is about us going forward with God. I must get right. No matter if he gets right. No matter, I hope he does. Maybe he has. I don't know. But, but my dear friend, I have to get right. If, if God's going to take me to the next step, if I'm going to fulfill what God has in my life, I have to take that step. I, I have to repent. I have to forgive. I have to do that. Otherwise, I cannot have God's blessing. I cannot have his anointing. For the Bible says of our Lord Jesus Christ that he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, the Lord hath anointed thee. Why? Because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. We must be the same. Well, it might involve, my friends, restitution. There might be things the Lord will show you and you'll have to go to that person to do with the workplace and you'll have to say, listen, I've got to get right with God. It might cost you a lot of money, friends. It might cost you far more if you don't. Cost you far more. In Wales, when the revival came, The Holy Spirit was so outpoured upon the people that crimes came to naught. In China, when the revival came in the 1940s and 50s in China, 
We're told that the authorities had taken people and they had tortured them to try and get information out of them. They wouldn't speak of the things they'd done, but when the revival came, they ran to tell. What the rack couldn't get out of them, the Holy Spirit compelled out of them. In Saskatoon, where Duncan Campbell came, the revival in 1971 in Canada, the chief, chief of police, who was not a Christian, in Saskatoon, he said in the community, he said something has happened in our city. He said it's not religion. It's not religion. It's more than religion. He said the people are coming to the police to confess their crimes. We have never seen this before. This is more than religion. You see, my dear friends, there must be confession. But then whenever he confessed, he said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. It says, Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. A cleansing, a deeper cleansing, a cleansing deeper than any cleansing you have had before. Duncan Campbell rightly said, he said, God will only cleanse and he will only cover what you uncover. See, my dear friends, tonight, God will come and he will cleanse. That was painful for Elijah or for Isaiah. That was painful. He's in the presence of God. His tongue has been brought before God. He has acknowledged his tongue and his behavior. And suddenly this angel goes forth to the altar in God's presence in heaven. And he takes a live coal from off that altar and he puts it on his tongue. And my friends, a white puff of smoke flies up into the sky. And his tongue swells up with pain. The pain of acknowledging your sin. The pain of bringing everything to the light. The pain of confessing and humbling oneself to say, God, I was wrong. To say to my neighbor, I was wrong. My attitudes were wrong. Oh, my friend, there is pain, but there is immense cleansing. Cleansing. I have felt the cleansing of God, Isaiah could say. I have been in the presence of God. I have come out. I'm a different man. My friends, that's what happened, John Wesley. He met God. He met God. That's what happened, John George Govan, the founder of the uh, faith mission over in Scotland in the late 1800s. Young man converted, unsettled in himself. He goes into a meeting, his brother's speaking. 
They're under conviction as God's putting his hand on this. This man's going to be a businessman. He has it all being handed over to him. This huge business and affluence and influence. And it's all before him. And he's challenged by God in his heart. What are you going to do with your life, John George Govan? What will you do? Are you going to do your own thing? Or will you do heaven's will? Will you do what God wants you to do? When the meeting was over, Govan, in this little, little hall, insignificant in Scotland, but so significant to heaven, so significant to the kingdom of God, this young man with the world at his feet, he threw it away and he fell on his knees in the middle of the hall and he gave us all to God and he said, God, take me, fill me, sanctify me, use me. And God met him. And my friends, he became the great evangelist that was to bring millions to the kingdom in Scotland and Africa and Ireland and other countries. W.P. Nicholson, the same, converted as a young man, went along to meetings and they began to preach about sin in the life as a Christian and the deeper work of grace that could be done. And Nicholson struggled, as he said, the preacher just exposed everything in me as a Christian. And God said, William, what will you do with the will of God? He was at a crossroads. And he said that he walked up and down the pier in Bangor. Nobody knew the key that it was for Ireland. Nobody knew the young man wrestling with God alone in the dark, that tens of thousands would come to the kingdom. Nobody knew. But heaven knew. God knew. And thank God that rough young fellow said, God, I'll do your will. I'll give my all to you. And the great revivalist was made by God. You see, my dear friends, as we draw to a close, there was a transformation that occurred in Isaiah. He began to hear God in a way he had never heard God before. Began to hear God's voice. See when the sin's dealt with deep in your heart? See when you get in earnest with God, Holy Spirit will start to become real to you. Start to speak to you. Start to show you things. And you'll pray in the Holy Ghost. And this man, when he's in this place now before God, suddenly his ears are tuned in. The prophet who had not been tuned in as well before and could not hear God in the way he should, who had not been aware of his tongue, not aware of the areas of his life, out of now the tuning had taken place. The coal had touched the lips. The tongue was changed. It couldn't speak like that anymore. God had come to his heart. God had changed him deep within. And then he listens and he's tuned in and he hears a voice of God saying, whom will I send and who will go? for us. Oh, my friends, I remember in Bible college many, many years ago, 
The late Reverend Dr. Colin Peckham was my principal. And I remember him preaching on this very text. And I well remember him explaining this verse to us as students as we sat in that college. And he said, young people, whenever Isaiah met God, he had the call of God on his life. He had heard God. He had felt God. He had been touched by God. But he said, then God spoke. Heaven said, I have a job. He said, so often we tend to think, he said, here am I, Lord, sent me. No, he said, it wasn't, it wasn't a vague, dowdy response. He said he threw his arms in the air. God, please, God, send me. Don't miss me, Lord. Don't miss me. Don't miss me. So desirous. Oh, God, please come to me. Please fill me. Please, God, take my life. Let's conclude. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? You see, friends, we have looked at the source of revival, God. We have looked at the saints of God as the remnant that are used for revival. But now we're looking finally for a few moments at the supply of God. And the way that the psalmist encapsulates everything that happens in revival, he encapsulates it all into one point. There's many, but he draws it to one, and this is what he said. Wilt thou not revive us again that we may rejoice in thee? Ah, my friend tonight, what are you rejoicing in? Dear Christian, what are you rejoicing in? Is the joy of your heart welled up by that new home, by that increase in salary, by that desire to inherit something, by that family member, by that position, whatever? What is the joy that wells in you? What is it? My friend, in revival it is God, God himself, who is our joy. In the Bible, joy is related to the presence of God. The psalmist said, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Do you know what the psalm says? In thy presence there is fullness of joy. My friends, he's talking about the presence of God. But not only is it related to God's presence, it is also accompanies God's Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. It always indicates spiritual health, joy. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. A joyful people are a strong people. Joyful in God. 
in Wales, and I'm closing, when the revival hit in that entire nation, such was the impact that churches were kept open all day. All churches. All churches. A man from England, a pastor, came to see a pastor in Wales and said to him, I believe the meetings are going on long time. He said, yes, from 6 to 12 and after 12 at night. He said, you mean from tea time? No, he said, 6 in the morning. The miners come in the morning and they, before they go down the mines, they seek God in their work clothes. And he said, they cry to God. Then when they go, the other workers come that are a bit later. He said, it goes on all day, but it never stops. It's one meeting. But he said, God is there. He said, well, who does the preaching? He said, there's not really any preaching. He says, God is looking after it all. The Holy Spirit is doing the work. Bankruptcies occurred all over Wales. During revival, yes, the pubs. Pubs went bankrupt. Nobody to drink. The police were brought in by the authorities, those who were over them, to find out what was going on because the judges were having white gloves handed to them to say that, that there was no crimes unheard of. Judge had nothing to do. Police, they said, well, the police, what are you doing? They had to consider what are we going to do with the police? And they said, well, our job is really to deal with crime and then deal with crowds. So at the moment, there's no crime. We're dealing with crowds. They said, well, what are you doing? Well, we're going to the churches. And they said, well, what are you doing at the churches? Are you, you know, there's no trouble? No, he says, eh, eh, no. He says, well, what are you doing? We're paying you. Well, he said, at the moment in our barracks, we have three quartets. And he says, we go around singing around the meetings. The police. Revival in Wales. The pits are turning into prayer meetings. The animals, there's a slowdown in the whole coal industry. It's all coming to a halt. It's hard to get it shifted. What's happening? I thought it was revival that would help the industry. It is helping it, but it's slowed it down. What do you mean? Well, these men who are in the pits, they're godless men. They have been cursing, swearing, and idolatry, and you name it, they have been at it. And the worst of them are in the mines with the, uh, with the horses and the mules. And he said they've got converted, and he said their vocabulary's gone. Their bad temper's gone. Their brutality's gone. And he said most of them are standing now with the oxen, and they're talking to their oxen and saying, come on, Mary, move on there now. Come on, take the coal out. And the old Mary, the animals don't know. They can't understand. New language, they can't understand it. They can't move. And he said it got so bad that they, did, they couldn't be angry with them anymore. They couldn't be cruel to them. They couldn't beat them anymore. And so a lot of the men were taking their hats off in the pit, and they were praying that God would move, move the oxen forward, and they began to move again when they prayed for them. Revival. Revival in Wales. We could go on and on of what happens in revival. But let me conclude. You say, Alan, well, what significance is this? This is a very good, interesting message tonight. But what significance is this for us today in the country that we're in with all its problems and all its people? What relevance is that? And like one of old, what is this among so many? I mentioned to you that in 1960s, Duncan Campbell came to Saskatoon, Canada. He then stated that 
The revival would come. God had revealed to him there would be a revival, and it did happen in 1971. In the mid-1960s, Duncan Campbell came to Lisburn. He was doing meetings in the old friend's meeting house where we used to have meetings there. There was an old man called Joe Kerr who's now with the Lord, and Joe had been having him take meetings in that very hall, holiness meetings. And Duncan Campbell was staying in his home, and when he was in his home, Joe Kerr came many years later to see my wife. She was a faith mission pilgrim, along with another young pilgrim. And Joe came to see her, and he said, I have come to give you a few groceries to help you as you do missions and minister to others, but God has sent me to come and tell you something. And she listened very attentively, and he said, you know, Duncan Campbell came and stayed in my home. And he said, one day, whenever he was upstairs, I was downstairs in my living room. And he said, the presence of God descended in my home in Antrim Street, Lisburn. He was a mature Christian. He was a very solid believer. He said, I entered another dimension. The ticking of the clock changed on the wall. I knew that I was enveloped by something, someone, that I had never experienced before. I walked out into the garden, and he said, as I walked out, he said, it seemed as though the trees, the flowers, the grass was all different. I knew I was in the presence of God. He said, I waited for a time, and it began to lift. I walked back in and sat in my chair, trying to come to terms and understand what had just happened. Short time later, he said, Duncan Campbell came down the stairs. He said, Joe, did you sense anything happening? Oh, Mr. Campbell, I did. I felt the presence of God come down in this home. He said, Joe, God has given me a vision. Riots are coming to Ireland. And then revival. He prophesied the only one that I know of in Saskatoon. And it happened. He prophesied over Ireland. And half of it has happened. The part that none of us liked. And he said something to my wife, Joe Care. God has told me that I will not see it. He died a year later. But he said, you, you will. You will. And I believe with every fiber of my being that revival is coming to Ireland. But not just to six counties, but to 32. And I want to be just some little link in what God would do in my land, in my country, with my people. I wonder tonight, are you available to God? wonder tonight what your ambitions are. Maybe your life's just trivia. It's just nothing. I'm a realist, my friends. Don't look up and think I'm just an emotional wreck. I'm a realist. 
I know one day I'm going to die. I know one day my body will be laid in the grave. I know one day eternity will come and I know I'll be with my Lord. But I have only one life. And it will soon be past. And only what's done for Jesus will last. And I trust that when I am dying, how glad I will be that the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. What about you tonight? Can God use you? Would you like him to use you? Would you like him to work in your heart? Would you like to be an instrument and get to know God? Let's bow in prayer.